I'm Felina. And I'm Summer. And you are listening to Broke and Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Hey, broken people. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back. So what do we want to talk about today, Felina? Well, before we have our guest on, I was just going to kind of follow up on our uh, guest from last week. Uh, he was talking about uh, becoming a... Or, discovering he was adopted uh, as a 42-year-old adult and just shared with us his uh, story and finding his birth family and, and all of that. And it just got me thinking about a project I plan to start, um, but I haven't really done anything on it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad is uh, an immigrant from Mexico, and he came here in the 70s with three of his brothers. I know he had at least five or six sisters uh, that stayed in Mexico. I went to uh, Guadalajara to see my abuelita and abuelito whenever I was little. I only met my grandfather once. Uh, He died when I was in sixth grade, when I was 12, I think. And then my grandmother died when I was a freshman in college. Um, But I have so much family in Mexico. And unlike a lot of uh, Hispanic or Mexican people who get to grow up with, you know, their extended family, their tias and tios Mm -hmm. live with them and all their cousins. And and I didn't have that experience. And I feel like there's just this big part of my culture and uh, my upbringing that I missed out on. And I'm really curious. And, you know, my dad and his brothers all have different stories of how they immigrated into the U.S. None of it was legal. Um, (laughs) My dad is a citizen now. But, uh, you know, and they have these crazy stories. I mean, my dad has told me one of my uncles was shot 14 times and has this, like, you know, Mexican ballad that's semi-famous written about him. And, you know, their farm was being taken away by or being threatened by by gangsters Uh at the time. And, uh, you know, when my dad and his brothers immigrated here, they all, you know, worked and sent money back home to help take care of the family and, and their sisters and their mom and dad. And, you know, I just, I, the handful of times I got to go to Mexico, I was really young. I didn't, I don't speak Spanish, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of bar- barriers for me to being able to reach out to family there. But, right. you know, because of Facebook, and, you know, I have one cousin who kind of speaks English and, my, you know, he stays in touch with my dad and, and me. And uh, so I want to start somewhere. And I have all these wonderful, really cool looking family photos from my dad's family uh, that I don't know who the people are in them. I know, oh, that's my grandmother, that's my grandfather, but I don't right. know, you know, my aunts, their names, any of that. And I'm sure that there's going to be some information on like ancestry.com or some places like that, but I haven't even started yet. Uh, but my, uh, one of my uncles, he's in his eighties. He's really ill. I don't think he's going to live all that much longer. And there's just this big, huge missing piece. You know, and I have an undergrad degree in journalism and my dad has always been like, when are you going to write our story? And I'm like, well, you all have different versions of the story. (laughs) I don't know, but that's kind of part of the... My mom's family's that way. None of the stories match up. Yeah. Like, Are any of these true? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I have no clue. Uh, but I want to start somewhere, and I want to go to Mexico. I know I have family that lives in Guadalajara, which is just three hours away from my favorite place in Mexico, which is Puerto Vallarta. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, uh, I've spent some time in Mexico, and, like, when I've gone, like, to Puerto Vallarta, you know, I'll go and I'll, I play music, I'll play the guitar, I bought a guitar off a street musician the last time I went and ended up getting drunk at a tequila distillery and playing guitar like you do do. (laughs) and uh, playing guitar and and singing songs with this man named Juan you know and you know and he was just like we felt like kindred spirits and you know they talked to me a lot about how like musicians are held in the higher regard in in Mexico especially than, than they are in the United States yeah I mean you're an artist and that really means something there and I don't know like I just and I, I mean, it's not like anybody in my family is a musician. I'm like, I wonder if oh, wow. I have, you know, I wonder right. if, if on my dad's side, maybe there is some musicians. You know, I don't know anything about them. I know my, my grandfather was uh, more Spaniard mm-hmm. and my grandmother was more uh, Aztec Indian. Okay. And so my dad was essentially a mestizo. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know anything else. You know, I don't really know where they came from. I don't know anything beyond them. Right. So I'm just really curious, and I'm going to start 
researching. So when my, my dad came to visit last weekend and I pulled out some old pictures and he labeled the names of people for me okay. so that I so could kind of have a, to start with. a place to start. Yeah. And there's gonna be a language barrier, but you know, fortunately, you know, the rest of the world isn't so arrogant <laughs> to think that they, their language is the only one they should know. So you know, I think a lot of my extended family, like cousins and mm-hmm. uh, second cousins will, like, I know there are some college educated, uh, you know, cousins in my family in Mexico mm-hmm. uh, that speak English. So I'm hoping I can find someone and start reaching out and find someone who's as interested in this as I am and right. maybe wants to like let me come visit and I want to document all this. Oh, and that'd be amazing. Yeah, so I'm uh, just now, like I'm feeling drawn to do this, I think just because I'm getting a little older and my daughter wants to know more about her history. And you know, we don't have a lot of family. We have my dad and that's it. My mom passed mm-hmm. away. You know, and, you know, Sophia's dad's family is pretty small as well, you know, and we always have this, I don't know, I just have this uh, urge, this ache for family and, and wanting to know where I come from. So, I don't know, just after our conversation with right. Jeff from last week and his search for his family, it made me think about this thing that I've been wanting That's to do. A, I like it. Yeah, and so it's I'm thinking, well, if I if I say it right now and we put it out there, <laughs> Now I have to do it. Right. Like, I have to do it. I need to stop. Be you know, accountable to you. Yeah. I need to stop not prioritizing it and, and make it a more of a priority Let's to see. you know, spend a little, an hour here and there just to do a little research right. and, and get started because I want to, I want to, I want to learn more about where I come from. So, cool. so that's my, my, my project. <laughs> and you know, the DNA testing is really changing that for a lot of people too. I know I have a friend who, I guess late last year, all she had of her information on her father was his name and the region of Mexico that he came from. Searched and searched for mm-hmm. years, couldn't, I mean, I don't remember what his name was, but it was a super common name. Right, like Smith, but Mexican, right. yeah. Right, I think his name was probably Juan or something where right. there's millions of people yeah. with Juan that name. Juan Lopez, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so she finally broke down and did one of the DNA mm-hmm. kits. And, and it that, was helpful? And Right, because there were, she found, there were cousins who had taken them and, um, put themselves on the registry too so it ma- it will match you up okay right not the ones that try to tell you what your ancestry is those aren't very reliable but the ones that do the ma- do, do the registry where you can see who's related to you and so then she okay. connected with them and being able to find out okay. more about her family okay and... well we need to find out which one she used okay uh, and then maybe they'll want to sponsor my journey <laughs> right that would be amazing yeah because I do want to document it all and, and see what you gotta comes get of it. those uh, videography skills going so you can record. I need everything. a GoPro. I think that's probably what needs to happen. Good idea. <laughs> anyway, we should start a GoFundMe for your camera. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today, so today we're going to be talking to Celia Williamson. She's been working on the issue of human trafficking for the last 25 years as an advocate, researcher, and teacher. She's also engaged in street outreach, case management. Um, lobbying for um, changes in laws. She's the director of um, the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Let's see if we can get Celia on the line here. Celia? Yeah. Hi, this is Summer Wesley. Um, Yeah. (laughs) How are you? Good. (laughs) Thank you for being willing to do this. Oh, sure. I have my co-host here, Felina. Hi, Celia. It's nice to meet you. Hi. Um, so can you kind of tell us a little bit about what you do? I, your email signature line said you're the director of the, the Institute. Yeah. So um, I direct the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been involved in anti-trafficking work for 25 years. So I've done um, probably since 1993. Mm-hmm. And I've done all kinds of work from street outreach to case management, going in jails, going in crack houses, and mm-hmm. to policy work. We passed three state laws to form in a coalition, running a state, uh, not running, but a member of a state anti-trafficking coalition, um, having started the oldest um human trafficking conference in the nation that's 15 years old now we have about 1500 people that attend um and what is that I, called say that again and I'm what sorry. is that called it's the human trafficking and social justice conference okay um 
I am a professor at the University of Toledo. So I have a PhD. I do research. I've been funded by um, the Department of Justice and National Institutes of Health for like 10 straight years um, okay. to do research in this area. So, yeah. Okay. I feel like um, we're hearing the phrase human trafficking a lot lately. But I feel like maybe the general public doesn't really understand what it is. So what is the first thing you think that we should know as the public about it? Yeah, I think um, what we should know is really human trafficking is made up of two types of trafficking, sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Mm -hmm. So um, in the U.S., and it's a global phenomenon, but... Mm -hmm. In the U.S., we have a federal law. It's the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. It passed in 2000. Okay. And it basically says that anybody that's involved in a commercial sex trade, of any kind of commercial sex trade, and they're there because of force, fraud, or coercion, then they're a victim of sex trafficking. Okay. Or if they're involved in labor, some type of job, where they're there because of force, fraud, or coercion, then they're a victim of labor trafficking. Okay, okay. Or if they have not reached the age of 18. So if they're under 18 right. and they're involved in the commercial sex trade, under federal law, they're automatically a victim of the crime of sex trafficking. And they are a child in need of care instead of a juvenile delinquent. Oh, okay. Okay. So that protects them in that way. Yes. Is there any um, delineated definition as far as the force or co coercion? Um, yeah, there's, you know, uh -huh. lawyers battle that in court in right. terms of definitions. And there are certain definitions, but, you know, the law kind of stays a little bit vague so okay. that you can argue those things. but. There's definite definitions about coercion, about mm -hmm. force, about fraud, and those types of things. But those are for, largely for adults, and anybody who's under the age of 18 then would automatically be a victim. And so it's been a process of, even though the federal law has been passed, it's been a process of getting state laws, advocates in each state, getting their state to pass laws so that people can prosecute traffickers on a state level. So in my community, though, I, we have a federal task force here because of the problem we have here. So we can okay. prosecute people using the state law or prosecutors can use the federal law. And where do you live? I'm in Toledo, Ohio. Okay. Yeah. So do you know how many states do and don't have those laws? Any idea? I I don't. Okay. Um, all, all I can say is that Shared Hope International, which is a website, and PolarisProject.org grades states. So it's very clear. You know, okay. anybody can go on those websites and they can look and um, your state will get, if it's Polaris Project, if they give your state a green color, then they're doing you know, a lot to fight human trafficking, or if you go to Shared Hope website, you get a grade from A to F on how well your state is doing in terms of fighting trafficking, in terms of passing laws and those types of things. Interesting. What was that website again? It's Shared Hope International. Okay. And yeah, they talk a lot about domestic trafficking. So when we're talking about human trafficking. We're really talking about um, uh, people that are brought here from other countries to be in the commercial sex or the labor trade. But we also have an estimate about 100,000 American teens that are trapped as sex trafficking victims. And that's according to mm -hmm. the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Wow. And so tell me a little bit more about the work that you do. So the work that I do, when I started in 1993, I was really, would drive to work and I was really interested in working with kids and families at a community center in a high crime area. And I was pa passing these women on the street and, um, you know, I really didn't like them. I wanted to work with kids and families and I wanted them to go away. And then one day I thought about what services are they getting or 
you know, I'm supposed to be focused on making communities better. Mm -hmm. um, And what was I doing? So I started to build a relationship with the women on the street and try to wave and try to slow my car and try to talk and try, you know, slowly build a relationship until I ended up spending six months on the street um, three times a week. Uh, all day interviewing women, hanging out, learning the culture mm-hmm. of the streets, learning about trafficking, the, the, the where the, the trap houses were, mm-hmm. uh, who the who the pimps or the traffickers were, and <clears throat> those types of things. And then after six months, we I built um, one of the first programs, well, the first program in Ohio that was an anti-trafficking program that's still open today that works with victims and how old were uh the ladies that you were you were seeing um they were adults and you know in their late 20s 30s early 40s and then when i would ask them when they got started and how they got started most had been you know um gotten into prostitution when they were 13 14 15 years old and Mm so as many women change and grow through relationship you know i heard um devastating stories about these women's lives and what happened to them when they were kids and I couldn't believe that no one was doing anything about it there there wasn't a program Um, no one was really sympathetic Mm -hmm. um, to to what was going on in their lives they were clearly victims of abuse and so just started to work on you know at the end of six months I just asked them you know what what kind of program would you have that would help people like you in this situation what components would you have in the program and we sat down and we wrote it all out. And then I just started to advocate and, and I developed that program and that program is still going on. Um, and then <clears throat> I just really found out that one program wasn't enough mm-hmm. because there were child, you know, child protection would end up giving the, the baby to the trafficker because they would understand that the woman was a prostitute and she was not any good, you know, doing doing bad things with her life and they'd understand that he was the trafficker or you know the judge was sentencing her to jail time and her customer was walking away or mm-hmm. you know people thought that she chose to just go out on the street and become drug addicted and sell her body and they didn't understand that she was trafficked as a young person a 13 or 14 year old and raped, beaten, sold, abused, and then used drugs to cope with complex and chronic trauma. And then after all that happened to her, the trafficker would walk away from her, leave her in that situation, and she'd end up back on the streets of Toledo, drug addicted, and nobody really had sympathy for her. So I was trying to, at that time, write grants Mm -hmm. uh, and win grants from the Violence Against Women money and I couldn't win grants when my competition was women who were victims of domestic violence and they're trying to just live a great life and somebody's beating them up and my women seemingly are out on the streets addicted to drugs who cares they took themselves out there so I couldn't really compete Mm -hmm. and so it finally dawned on me that I needed to work on change in the paradigm I needed to change the perspective of the people in my community and so you know I worked a lot with the media Um, I promised to give them a story every month um, statistics a personal story about a woman's life Mm -hmm. and I they they would get readers and I would get readers who would change their perspective about these women and these kids that's great yeah so you know that's what happened and so how has your career grown since then what do you what do you do now or what was your path to what you're doing now well now um i run a conference it's been going on 15 years like i said we have about 1500 people that come we have about 90 presenters from across the country and around the world um happens every year in September in Toledo and so I do that I do a lot of research um, because if you want people to create change or pass laws then you have to produce the research the facts the the, the credibility and so I'll do a lot of that I we 
just finished developing a 10 topic curriculum for youth that are at risk so we can do some prevention. Um, we coordinate the city's services here so that we have a well-coordinated service team that helps move victims to survivors and survivors to thrivers so that our victims can recover. Most all of them have chronic long-term trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, some have traumatic brain injury, those things. And so we collaborate a lot across cities and across the country. We have a global association of human trafficking scholars that we meet and talk about what's going on globally. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. And all I was really, really going to do was just go on the streets, learn what women need and then provide it. That was it. (laughs) Well, I would say that you're doing that. I mean, yeah. it's just a much bigger mountain than you expected to climb. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I didn't know until much later in my life that, that I had three friends from my neighborhood, mm-hmm. my very block of my neighborhood that were trafficked. Wow. And I didn't know that when I was a kid that, you know, these three girls got involved in prostitution and one escaped and moved to Kansas, the other got drug addicted and battled that for several years and the third one was murdered by one of her customers Mm -hmm. um and then me who went to college Mm -hmm. you know I don't how did that happen so so, yeah can you tell us your story if you don't mind yeah I don't really have it I mean I was I grew up poor in an urban area in Toledo where there was a lot of crime, but I had two parents. I had, you know, and I don't believe you need two parents. I believe you need one consistently pro-social loving person in your life, but I was lucky to have two. My father worked, my mother stayed home, took care of kids, cooked, you know, graduated high school, went to college. You know, it was very strange because I was in a neighborhood of chaos, but, um, you know, that's that's why I know if if you're in a, a, a low-income, high-crime area, it, it depends on how many protective factors you have in your life and how many risk factors. You know, I, I had a lot of protective factors. Mm-hmm. And some of my friends who were great, wonderful people, but they, they had a lot of risk factors and not a lot of protective factors. They might have mm-hmm. had parents that were alcoholics or, you know, parents that were just poor, good people, but were poor and so they were faced a lot of risk and you know and then there's of course some blessing I guess in there too so my story isn't interesting or exciting I went to you know I went to school and (laughs) that was my safe haven um just keep keep going to school keep going to school until I got a PhD because that's the only thing I knew that you know I didn't know what was on the other side of life I just knew I didn't want this right (laughs) right so, and you knew yeah. education would help keep you from that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's the lesson I'm trying to teach my daughter too. So, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's how yeah. I am. I mean, you know, I hang out. I hung out with all of the, you know, risky people. I experimented with the alcohol, the drugs. I hung out late at night. I did, I did all those things. But somehow, deep in myself, I knew I was just kind of playing with these things. I was just kind of experimenting with these things. So I, I knew that wasn't, I didn't want that for my life, and I knew it wasn't going to be for my life. But, you know, I had no idea. I thought I would, yeah, I live in North Toledo. I'll help people in North Toledo. I'll retire to North Toledo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what my, what I thought was going to happen. But it just kept rolling into bigger, <laughs> much bigger, bigger things. things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you uh, have any thoughts on uh, SESTA and FOSTA? Yeah, um, that's um, where there's a um, back page, online back page, mm-hmm. where you can buy things. And so what some of the things that they were doing was selling kids into trafficking and commercial sex. And so Senator Portman and some other people went after back page to get that shut down. So... You know, it's very controversial because some people say, well, they wanted it shut down because we can't sell, we can't know that people are selling kids on the internet and let it happen. And some people say, no, we, we shouldn't have shut it down because 
what happened was now now the police don't know as much where to look you know they can't police it as well right um and then there's a whole sex worker argument um and so the you know the sex worker argument i'll address first is we have a conference where we talk about trafficking and we talk about survivors of trafficking and we also have sex workers that come and talk about sex work and that's their job Mm -hmm. and their oppression is that people keep trying to rescue them from something they don't want to be rescued from right um i don't tell women what their reality is so if they tell me that they choose sex work and they're an empowered woman, woman, I'm not going to tell them that they are uh, victimized and exploited and they just don't know it yet. Mm-hmm. I, I don't do that because it, the first rule of feminism is to believe the multiple realities of women. So I, I have to do that. And mm-hmm. the ones who tell me they were victimized by that, I have to do my best to try to help them escape that and become a thriver. Mm-hmm. So, so when I think about the back page controversy, you know, I, I'm a supporter of the fact that it was shut down. Okay. And the reason that I support that is because one, I don't think as a country we should stand for kids being sold online, and we know about it, and we're okay about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't like that idea. I do like the idea. I, I love the free speech idea. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm a little nervous about that. I, I wasn't comfortable with it, but because I love the free speech idea. I've used free speech right. <laughs> years ago when nobody was trying to listen to me about these kids being trafficked. I also, I don't buy the argument of, oh my God, we don't, we won't know where to police it now. Well, you know, we don't treat robbery that way. We don't say, hey, well, let's leave the bank open. Let's leave one bank open downtown so that when all the robbers come there to rob it, uh, we, we can catch them. That, this, that's just not how we police things. So I, I'm not, you know, if the cops don't know where to patrol it or how to investigate it, then they need to get smarter on how to investigate it. Not, we don't need to leave this open so kids could be sold on there so you know where to find them. That, that I don't okay. support. So the only thing I'm uncomfortable with is the, the freedom of speech. That I, I'm a little... So as as far as you, you're concerned, removing that has reduced the numbers, you think, of trafficking the children or just pushed it somewhere no, else? I don't think it's reduce the number. I don't think shutting down Backpage has reduced the number of kids being sold. I think traffickers find uh-huh. other ways. Uh, for instance, in my community, one of the okay. ways that people traffic kids is um, to text. They'll, they'll, they'll use these houses. They'll go to a friend or whoever and they'll say, hey, let me use your house for the weekend. Uh, I'll give you $500 and your house will be exactly the way you left it. Um, you know, just don't ask any questions. The person leaves, they text all the potential customers, they have their girls at that house, mm-hmm. or boys, and then all the customers come to that house. And so it keeps, it's a moving target, it always moves, and so it's harder to police, and it's harder to investigate. Um, that's what happens in my community, and I, in communities across the country, there's still a lot of people being sold at truck stops. It's mm-hmm. basically wherever supply is taken to demand. So wherever you see customers, men with money in their pockets, casinos, uh, sporting events, um, conventions, truck stops, you know, that's where supply is going to be taken to demand. So, so. Can, can we talk about the demand? Who's the typical customer, shall we say? Um Customers come in all shapes, sizes, and ages. Um, so you know, white, black, Asian. It's it's a customer. I would mm-hmm. say um, I can tell you who like the women would want as a customer. I mean, okay. if you're a trafficking victim, or if you're a woman in prostitution, or if you're a sex worker, and I. I distinguish between the three. So, okay. you know, a trafficking victim is there because of forced fraud or coercion or they're a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, they have no business being there. They don't want to be there. And then 
there's women in prostitution or what we call prostituted women and they're there because they're in poverty because they're drug addicted because they're trying to survive so that that's a different category and then there are women there because they're sex workers they've chosen this as a profession and this is this is largely in america anyway sex workers are largely white middle class women and up it's you're not going to really see poor women of color with this argument okay still valid it's still valid but you're not going to see a whole lot of poor women um, with this debate or this argument. But um, now, I was going to answer the question. Oh, so the women would say that the customer that they would prefer, if they had to have one or wanted to have one, would be a older white man. And that is because, you know, he's he is more likely, they would say, to be compliant. He's more likely to, to tip. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. what you're doing when you're engaging someone is you're trying to figure out, are you, are you interested in a sex for money exchange? Mm-hmm. Or are you interested in hurting me, robbing me, right. something like that? And so those are some of the, the kind of their protective factors mm-hmm. as they're, if they had a choice, you know, I think that's the person that they would choose. I think um, the reason I was asking is I think I see really commonly when these stories come out about trafficking rings or whatever, um, mm-hmm. the commentary from a lot of the public is they seem to think about the customers as, you know, monsters hiding in a dark corner and don't realize these are your fathers, your neighbors, your pastor, maybe, you know, Absolutely. these are people you are around all of the time. And without that demand, there would not be this supply. That's exactly accurate. And the, the, the guy that's buying kids or what, th- this guy isn't living under the bridge. Okay. Right. He's not the creep under the bridge because they creep under the bridge, can't afford, you know, when you're talking a 14 or 15, you're talking a gold standard premium product, that's expensive. So we're talking about people that are in jobs that, you know, we, we did a study uh, across five Ohio cities where we asked women, what, who, who bought you? Mm-hmm. Who, who paid for your services? And we largely found out, you know, lawyers, police officers, city employees, social workers, pastors, um, it was men professionals yeah it was just men with pretty good jobs and a matter of fact in october we have uh two pastors that are going on trial for trafficking Mm -hmm. in our community Mm -hmm. so you know it's not um the creepy guy under the bridge i mean a couple months ago we had a vice cop on trial for trafficking well they would know exactly where to look wouldn't they (laughs) was it a vice cop oh wow i mean he was found not guilty but oh of course he was yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. So these two pastors are, are going to be on trial in uh, this month, October. So what what measures have been taken that have reduced uh, trafficking? Mm-hmm. So now you said that you know you agreed with SESTA yeah. and FOSTA, but they didn't really seem to have reduced child trafficking. Right. So what what measures have you seen work to reduce? Well, I think it's a it's a combination of. You know, we passed a few laws. One of the most important laws that many states have passed is called Safe Harbor. And Safe Harbor law says that um, child trafficking is child abuse, basically. So it really shifted the paradigm from saying, oh, these are juvenile delinquents, they need to be seen in court, to, oh, these are children in need of care, they need to be seen by child welfare. So it really shifted the way we looked at kids, you know, because it's hard to say to kids, would you come forward and please tell us if somebody is making you do this? And then as soon as they tell us, we put them in in detention. Right. So how how does that make sense? You haven't committed a crime. You're indeed a victim of a crime. And then we lock you up. And so we've done that for a number of years. And so now we're stopping that practice, not convicting or adjudicating kids who are victims of this crime. Another law that Ohio has passed is if you committed crimes while you were under the force and coercion of someone else, your lawyer can go in and argue that and and expunge those records so that you can now start getting um, training and a livable wage job. So we started to, we're starting to 
remove those barriers that keep women subjugated so, um, even when they're free so would that also those collateral crimes that they might have committed while um, being trafficked does that mm-hmm. affect the prosecution of those as well that they aren't being prosecuted as often yeah if we can catch it uh-huh. now and right. say oh okay you know your honor she was a trafficking victim we can prove that that she's been a trafficking victim and she was forced to do this to do that sometimes though we it's because we're we are just recently passing these laws we have to go retroactive so somebody that has been you know convicted of burglary or whatever we can go back into court and say okay you know in 2016 this person was a trafficking victim and Mm -hmm. we already went through court and established that and her trafficker is in prison now during that time she was forced to do this your honor this is holding her back from getting a livable wage job Mm -hmm. from moving on with her life and so we're able to then clean up that some of her record so that she is able to start a new life so it helps with expungements does it um help with like say early release or anything of that nature if they're currently serving sentences um it could but you would have to have a pretty good lawyer <laughs> and we're and people are training lawyers what what's happening with the whole paradigm shift is mm-hmm. you know social workers are being trained to work with victims to offer trauma treatment to do all these things that we know are good practice mm-hmm. criminal justice are being trained for instance every police officer in ohio is already trained so they're trained to identify victims there are task forces all across the country that know a lot about trafficking so that when joe cop finds an indicator or whatever mm-hmm. all he does is call the task force because the task force can investigate and they can remove the entire cell the entire organization Whereas the Joe cop will bust in the door and arrest one one link in the chain, okay. they can take out the entire cell. So as criminal justice is making a shift uh, to learn about trafficking, to, to not interrogate victims, but interview victims. Okay. So they're, criminal justice is making a shift. Social workers are making a shift in how they treat victims and receive victims. Healthcare is, is making a change because we know 88% of our victims in the U.S. have been to an emergency room or a clinic. Mm-hmm. And so that's a window of opportunity. So we're training our healthcare system to identify victims. For instance, in my community, uh, Northwest Ohio, every one of our hospital presidents in our 24 facilities mm-hmm. have agreed to have their ER staff and their clinic staff trained in identifying and reporting trafficking. These are all great things that are happening to help uh, people who have already been victimized. Yes. Uh, but as far as my question earlier, you know, in saying that SESTA and FOSTA didn't really help as a deterrent uh, for, yes. you know, the initial trafficking of children, uh, you know, has there been anything that you've found that is a deterrent from them, you know, preventing the Prevention. victimization? Yes. Yeah. So we, so there's a couple of prevention programs going, not a couple, there's a whole lot of prevention programs uh, cropping up in schools and all across the U.S. for young people that are at, at risk. Um, our curriculum is particularly for young people at risk. So our curriculum isn't designed to just go in a school and educate the general population. We're really looking for those kids that are at high risk, and we know who they are because we've done the research to identify kids that are at risk. So we're doing that part. Mm-hmm. In terms of um, law enforcement and being a deterrent for Uh, potential traffickers that really isn't happening i don't think but i'm i'm a little bit jaded you know but i don't think uh we're creating such a huge deterrent yet across the u.s um because i don't think that if you get 30 years in prison and we've had some traffickers get 30 years in prison Mm -hmm. from my community i just don't think that traffickers connect the potential time they could get in prison by what they're looking at i think they think they're smarter right i think they think they're not going to get caught i don't think that's a deterrent right i think that when you know the u.s is 
has a national campaign called Rescue and Restore, and that's our national human trafficking campaign. They ask professionals and general community to rescue, uh, criminal justice to rescue, the community to restore. I think it's a deeper issue, mm-hmm. and it has to do with human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's deeper than that. And it has to do with a deep-rooted sense of sexism and entitlement, Absolutely. not only in the mm-hmm. U.S., but around the world. And until we change our perspective about how we can treat women... Well, until we they're not it, seen as possessions right. or yes. property anymore. Yeah, yes. which I guess, I mean, that's the thing with Sustin Fosta for me is that you know it's placing all this responsibility on on the victims you know it's taking away exactly. you know well all of these things that we're really talking about is like you know really... we're going to teach these kids you know preventative measures and go to the at risk exactly. kids but what are we doing to deter the men who are actually perpetuating these heinous crimes from, yes. from doing this you know what are we doing to fix that problem it's the same yes. issue with uh you know women violence against women you know it's it's exactly. all about the women well don't dress provocatively don't do this don't do that well what are you doing to teach men exactly. to be decent human beings and, and and i can i can tell you that <laughs> it took that was the law so so we passed a law in 2010 we passed the safe harbor law in 2012 mm-hmm. 2014 we were able to pass our what we call demand legislation meaning if you purchase somebody who's a victim or a kid who's a victim mm-hmm. you're going to be facing a felony Okay. okay, there's a reason it took until 2014 to pass demand legislation. That's insanity. Because, it was yeah. it a felony before 2014 to purchase a child? Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. I'm no, shocked. Right. No, not necessarily. Not if you put money in somebody's hand or in that kid's hand. Mm. Not necessarily. So it was the hardest one to pass. Wow. Because you're talking about now I'm coming, you know, we're coming, and not me, I mean, the whole community and 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 the legislator that's leading this cause coming after people who are very entitled who are very powerful uh and and who want access to vulnerable kids well you've seen how men who are entitled to things (laughs) behave and when they're questioned so exactly we've all seen that lately (laughs) yes so that that's our issue and so when we have a population that's that's seen by a lot of men as a as a a, almost a expendable Mm -hmm. throwaway kind of population um and even from the research lens you know it's hard to put your research lens on people with power and study it it's easy to go out on the street or to go in juvenile detention and talk to kids and write about kids and interview women on drugs and you know women that were trafficked that's easy when you try to go in and talk to men about their behavior and about them being a customer and about they have so many protections you you right. can't get through those barriers to study it to talk about it to have conversations about it to pass laws about it right yeah well i guess it would that makes a lot of sense i mean how can you research their behavior if they're guarded and, right. and don't admit Without it and, yeah no that makes a lot of sense well, there's a study done about trafficking law, and uh, it, it said that the more female legislators you have in a state, the more likely you are to pass comprehensive anti-trafficking laws. The more men you have in a state, the less likely you are to pass comprehensive human trafficking laws. This makes me never want to vote for another man in yep. office ever. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it's like when you look, you know, when you see like the movie taken mm-hmm. this is my pet peeve on the movie taken you you have uh, you know it's about human trafficking and liam neeson and his daughter is trafficked and he goes to another country to rescue her mm-hmm. and it's the american story it's the american story we love to tell first you know white guy saves the day that's the right. american story mm-hmm. my and, favorite complex um, is real yeah and so <laughs> and so when you look at the study though mm-hmm. the more female legislators the more likely to have comprehensive law so it's really women saving the day mm-hmm. but in the movie he saves the day mm-hmm. he goes to another country he wreaks havoc but he's he's an american so he can do that and he doesn't go to jail or anything and, and this stuff um, just doesn't happen here right right, right. 
and and so you know america germany some of the first world countries are notorious for for being one of the highest rated sex buyers in the world so actually she's safer to leave the u.s and go to another country provided it's not germany but um because u.s and germany kind of rival for number one so but she gets trafficked why when she's out of the country and by who the arabs because that's another story yeah and none of that is reality and then at the end she goes on to have her singing or acting career i forget but no trauma right yeah right you know we'll pretend that doesn't exist right and so you just finish your popcorn and you believe that's that's the way the world works yeah I'm upset right now. I'm sorry. I don't <laughs> yes. even have anything to say. Very emotional. I'm really irritated right now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I guess this is probably how you feel on a daily basis. And it's not that I don't think, I mean, that, that I didn't care before this moment. But, you know, I think it's something that people yeah. don't want to think about every day because it is so hard and heavy uh, to yeah. deal with, you know. And, and you is... see it from, like you said, you see it from the top down to the lowest rung to the highest rung. And this is the time in our society, I mean, with the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement and, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the time. Like, if we are going to really give women a voice in this country and vulnerable people a voice around the world, you know, this is is the time to do it. Well, this is telling me, you know, I... I had a, a boyfriend who's no longer a boyfriend tell me once that he thought the Me Too movement had gone too far. Oh, that was one one trigger to one, one reason why I was like, yeah, you're not for me. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and hearing stuff like this, like it just makes me want to scream it even louder. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not making yes. enough noise still and, and we're screaming pretty damn loud and it's still not enough. And, yes. you know, we have to fight so hard as women just to be heard as an equal to men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we still yes. often aren't and uh, they wonder why we're screaming so loud they wonder why we're still I don't think they wonder why I think they just wonder how to shut us up you know the, right. the old methods don't work anymore you know they don't have a, you that's know right. the times are changing they can't shut us up like they used to yeah. so. that's right it's like I, I think it's the, you know what we were willing to put up with yesterday we're not willing to put up with today. absolutely right. I have feel more options I feel my tolerance going down on a personal level I mean yes. <laughs> you yes. know I just I would prefer to just be alone than mm. to deal with a man who's not a hardcore <laughs> feminist these yes. days you know yes that's right that's right and I think of the women then the struggles that they have to make all the way back from you know we 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 had one survivor that you know her throat was cut and she was left for dead in the alley Mm. uh in our community and she fought her way all the way back to get her bachelor's degree yeah and it's amazing and it's wonderful but it's like why did that even have to happen to you why did you have to fight and struggle and use a lot of your life's blood, a lot of your 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 spiritual energy, your intellectual energy, your emotional, mental health, just right. to get this far? Just to survive, rather yeah. than yeah. to rather than to think what she could have done when if she was just focusing on thriving. Right. But that's exactly yeah exactly. But you know what they're they what they don't know what they're doing is they're just making us incredibly, incredibly strong. And uh, we're going to be, we already are uh, much stronger than, than most men because they don't have to deal deal with with the adversity and and Mm -hmm. the bullshit, the day to day bullshit that we have to deal with. So they don't have the strength that we have. That's right. So uh, they should be threatened. They should be scared. Right. <laughs> they should be scared. That's what I say. That's that's what I tell my team every day. I say every day that I wake up in the morning and my toes hit the floor like that saying says, you, you better be scared. Don't blink because I got you because I'm on my game. I hope you're on yours. You know, that's what I say right. to traffickers. I'm doing everything in my power and every ounce of energy I have um, fighting this issue. And not me, but there's a lot of people, women and men, fighting this this issue to try to just get some semblance of equity some some acknowledgement of being a human being mm-hmm. um 
And so, you know, the fight continues. But I say as women, you know, what else do we have to do? I mean, we've been <laughs> carrying it all. So why not? Fix the why world. Not? What else do we yeah. have to do? <laughs> we need to just be a matriarchal society again. <laughs> yes. Yes. <clears throat> well, thank you for being willing to talk to us. And thank you for all the work you do. Um, is there anywhere oh, sure. that people can keep up with the work that the Institute does? Do you have social media or anything like that? Absolutely. I am starting a podcast myself because I want to do a human trafficking focused uh, podcast on how to do this work because a lot of people, when they learn about it, they get very passionate Mm -hmm. about it and then they start searching on the internet for, okay, how do I do it? And there's not, there's, there's dead air. There's nothing that teaches you street outreach or case management or opening a group home for survivors Mm -hmm. or, you know, any of those things. I've done those things. So I'm going to spend the rest of my career really spending that little bit of time on a podcast teaching people how to do things. Mm -hmm. So when I start it, it's going to be called Emancipation Nation. Um, Otherwise, we have a conference every year in September and they can go to traffickingconference.com and that's where we'll have about 90 presenters over the course of two days that will teach people everything from soup to nuts in terms of trafficking human rights and social justice all right thank you yeah thank you i appreciate it you have a good evening okay you too bye okay so follow-up comments I'm pissed off right now. I'm actually <laughs> looking up a friend who I know does uh, trafficking work okay. uh, to connect her, oh, good. Uh, to connect them. Uh, so I'm I'm pissed off and motivated right now. Good. Well, I'm glad <laughs> to hear it. I did want to say, I know we have um, talked about the, what, the laws. I can't remember. Sesta and FASTA. Thank you. I never yeah. remember the ac- acronyms. I know we have talked about this on the podcast before, even before you came on, mm-hmm. that... Um, I personally am of the opinion that I did not support the laws. Ditto. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, as, as she, she said, even said, it didn't it didn't do anything to reduce the tra- number of trafficking of ch- children, but it did make voluntarily yes make li- sex life workers much less safe, safe yes. for those mm-hmm. for sex workers. Yeah, and so as as of course you know there's the. Um, free speech argument as well but yeah. really the one that resonated with me the most is how less safe things are for sex workers and I feel like there was an empathy gap in the debate that was happening about that I felt like how she was talking about trafficking victims have, have been seen as expendable I felt like while that debate was happening that sex workers were being treated as, as expendable, expendable yep. and that didn't mm-hmm. matter to the decision makers that it was going to make their life more difficult and make them less safe. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's my two cents as well. You can contact the podcast at broke, broken podcast at gmail.com. The broken, broken podcast can be found on Twitter at broke, broken show on Instagram and Facebook at broke, broken podcast.